The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on the show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. The team at Invax is dedicated to delivering new personalized immunotherapy approaches to improve outcomes for people living with glioblastoma and other solid tumors. Leveraging decades of validated research and technologies, Invax's unique platform is designed to capture a tumor's full antigen signature and use it to stimulate a patient's immune system against remaining tumor cells. Invax is currently recruiting for a randomized phase 2b clinical trial of IGV-001 in newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients. Learn more about this Phase 2b trial at imvax.com or clinicaltrials.gov. Imvax, advancing a new approach to personalized cancer immunotherapy. Welcome to Game on Glio a podcast that tells the stories of brain cancer warriors, clinicians, medical experts, and those in the grief and loss community. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. This season, you will hear unique brain cancer and grief and loss stories, as well as my own journey through grief and loss. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or Instagram and YouTube at Game on Glio Podcast. You can also visit and subscribe to our website at thegameongliopodcast.com for our blog, insights, clinical trials, and guest snapshots. Season 3 of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT MedTech and Gametile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. And by Invax, personalized whole tumor-derived immunotherapies. Learn more at invax.com. Novel technology, innovative clinical trials, inspired care. That's what you get with UB Neurosurgery. UB Neurosurgery, also known as UBNS, is ranked as one of the top-rated and busiest neurocath labs in the country. Our doctors are trained at top centers across the nation and work in a collaborative environment making your treatment and care our top priority. With over 50 human clinical trials, UBNS has its finger on the pulse of diagnosing and treating complex disorders of the brain and spine. Are you looking for outpatient services? UBNS has it. Atlas, UBNS's outpatient neurosurgical center, offers specialty services such as gamma knife, minimally invasive treatments, back pain prevention, as well as treating disorders of the brain and spine. UBNS, advancing the practice of neurosurgery through novel technology, innovative clinical trials, and inspired care. Learn more at ubns.com. September is Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. And with that, we have a pediatric brain cancer story that we will be sharing with you today. But before she joins us, I want to talk to you a little bit about healing, about the journey of healing through loss and traumatic events. Within the theme of our show this year of Advocate and Navigate, today's theme centers around finding joy within the story that you're living and how to do that. Many of you are aware that this time of year is a fairly difficult time of year for me. 
Next month, on the 29th of October, it will be the third anniversary of my late husband's death. Surrounding that are so many triggers and other anniversaries. Our wedding anniversary, the holidays, when he was diagnosed. All of that seems to wrap into the same time of year. And as I look back on the last three years and where I am in my journey, I see things so differently than I did before he was sick. And loss, as we define it, means so many different things. It is not just the loss of a spouse. When we talk about loss, we talk about the loss of identity, the loss of innocence, the loss of life as it was before, the loss of hopes and dreams. All of that wraps into grieving and what that looks like. For our guest today, Kelly Barnhart, her loss is in the form of grieving what was. The loss of innocence in her son's case and the dreams and hopes that they had. But, and I emphasize this, they have new hopes and new dreams and they have found a way to find joy within the story that they are living, which includes their son Carson's five-year battle with glioblastoma, diagnosed when he was only five months old. Carson has been living with glioblastoma for over five years. There is so much hope and joy wrapped into this story, wrapped into this interview. And Kelly teaches us quite a bit about resilience and how to find joy in the story that you're living. But what does that truly mean? How do we really define that? Each of us is on our own journey. And as I continue to walk through my process, what I continue to learn is that the edges are softer, they're not as sharp, but that the hole is still there. I'm not the person I was before Mike got sick. And I think I mourn that person a little bit because I know I'm different. I'm not as carefree. I am not as much of a dreamer. I was more content, fuller, happier. I felt safe. When you go through loss, especially loss of a child, loss of a spouse, you do become different. You might be a little sadder, a little less balanced, but you're also wiser, stronger, and you see life in a different way. When you go through significant loss and change, you learn not to take life for granted, not to wait for life to happen, but to embrace life as it's unfolding in the present. And that is finding the joy in the story that you are living. Every day I get up and I empty my mind of all expectation, all preconceived notions, all fear, doubt, judgment, anger, worry, and I go through my day. And then I wrap my day up, I go to bed, I get up, and I do it all over again. That is how I am walking through my story right now. And when I find those moments of joy, I recognize them. 
I put a spotlight on them, no matter how brief. That's where we start, and it is not an easy journey. There are a lot of things that I am coming to have to accept right now, and I never thought in the last three years that my late husband's death would be the only death and loss that I would suffer. I have seen a lot of death since losing him and have lost people I care about a great deal, and that is significant. And yet I continue to practice emptying my mind every day, which is called Mushin. It is a martial arts practice, mental practice. I continue to be observant of the moments of joy that I have, and I embrace life as it's unfolding today, finding joy in the story that I'm living, and recognizing that it's okay that I am not the person I was before, and that little by little those pieces of me will eventually come back, but they're always going to be different, feel different, and the hole that is left by Mike's death will never go away. It will soften, but it will never go away. I miss him every single day. And these are some of the lessons that you will learn in hearing our story today with Kelly Barnhart. She joins us next in a very inspirational interview after a brief word from one of our sponsors. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against the tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas, gamma tile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma tile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamma tile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gammatile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Game on Glio podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with us. Her name is Kelly Barnhart. She lives in Western New York with her husband and their three kids. She is a special education teacher and has been for the last 20 years, but has become very passionate in the last five years about sharing her son Carson's cancer journey story to spread awareness and hope for both brain cancer and pediatric cancer stories. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your family's journey into brain cancer. Tell us a little bit about your son and how old he is and what type of cancer he has. Carson is currently five. Our cancer journey started actually about five years ago when he was five months old. It was just a normal summer day. Um, I was planning to take my two older kids to their swimming lesson. They were seven and nine at the time, dragging my infant along with me as, as mothers often do. I remember that day, my biggest concern was if I was going to get Carson home for his nap on time. He was the five-month-old. I just watched their swimming lesson. We sat on the sidelines. We cheered them on. We headed home. 
Carson started to get a little crabby in the car. And, you know, I just figured that he was tired. And I got mm-hmm. home and I put him down for his nap. Whew, I headed outside just to watch the older two kids um, swim in the pool. And I was watching Carson on his monitor as he napped. Mm-hmm. I took a screenshot of him when I was watching him on the monitor because it was the first time that he had rolled over onto his stomach Mm -hmm. during a nap and stayed there. Um, And it was just a moment, you know, mom's document when kids do something different. Super observant. (sighs) Of course. That picture haunts me now, actually, because he woke up from that nap. And up until that point, he was just a typical baby. Even looking back on it, knowing where he's come since then, Mm -hmm. there were no signs or symptoms of anything. When he woke up from that nap, he was just inconsolable and then vomiting. I was actually relieved when he vomited because I thought that must be why he's crying. I was trying to figure out what was going on. After a period of time where I started to worry because he was continuously vomiting, he wasn't nursing or keeping anything down. Oh my gosh. We decided to head to urgent care. I was worried he would be dehydrated. That I think at that point was my biggest concern. You lose nothing by being proactive. I mean, you lose nothing but time. Sure. Yes. I mean, that definitely also in retrospect now, obviously, we needed to knowing what was happening Mm -hmm. in retrospect, you know, obviously, we needed to head there and figure it out. So urgent care, uh, we didn't get any answers. They were concerned because he was so irritable. Obviously, he was very uncomfortable because of something. Um, Mm -hmm. So they ended up um, sending us to the emergency room. They were concerned it could be intussusception, which is like a telescoped bowel, because I think I had mentioned that he hadn't had a bowel movement in a couple days. Mm -hmm. So we headed to the ER, and all of the tests, everything they did came back normal. And Carson was still miserable and vomiting. So they admitted us uh, still with no answers. The next day, when he was still very upset, I noticed that his left leg and right leg weren't symmetrical when he was crying. Meaning like usually a baby would pick up their legs when they're crying Mm -hmm. and upset and his left leg wasn't moving. I mentioned it to the doctor and they started to think that it could possibly be neurological. So after sending us to an x-ray to make sure nothing was wrong with his leg. They sent us for an MRI. Um, At this point, I was really worried. Just thinking of the possibilities and, you know, this is my five-month-old, you know, all of the things that I'm thinking in my head are rare. You know, could that really be what it is in a baby? Yeah, five months old. It's hard to send an adult person in for an MRI. I think about the stress that my husband had and Picturing a five-month-old having to go through all the noise and the sounds and yeah, I can't even imagine what you were going through. Yeah, I think back on it now. I mean, I you can hear me getting emotional. I don't think I ever will not get emotional about this day. Yeah. I just will never forget it. My sister actually is a pediatrician at the hospital that we were at. So thankfully, like she was by my side and she was asking questions and taking notes and just talking to me about what was going on and helping me through it as a sister and a medical professional. Um, I will always be grateful to her for that. It was seemed to be taking too long in the MRI mm-hmm. and I started to worry more and more. Mm-hmm. And then my six, my sister actually was the person who came out and gave us the, the results that they had found a tumor that was quite large in his brain. I'll just never forget the moment I literally dropped to my knees. I, I think I screamed why. I felt numb and overwhelmed all at once. 
I was terrified. And I remember I just wanted him back in my arms. At that point, they wanted to continue the MRI to look at his spine and see if they, you know, found anything else after the initial finding of the tumor. So there was more waiting, more fear. Uh, It was just a really awful, scary, overwhelming day. So that wasn't diagnosis day. That was the day they found the, the tumor. We talked to an oncologist. We talked to a neurosurgeon. They, from the looks of it, it, it looked aggressive. They wanted to get it out as soon as they could. So he had brain surgery two days later. At five months old. Yes. Wow. What was the result after they did the surgery? What did they conclude? So after the surgery, they moved us to the surgery recovery floor where we were waiting for the pathology results. Mm -hmm. They didn't sugarcoat it. I mean, I remember them saying it did look aggressive. They thought that it was probably cancerous. They didn't know which type. We needed the pathology report to, to determine that. So... I remember at that point, my my biggest focus was just to get Carson to smile again. Mm. He was such a smiley, happy baby, and he hadn't smiled or nursed in, in days. I, I just wanted him back. I focused on that because focusing on the unknown was just too much. You can't control the unknown. Yes. And at that point, the diagnosis and what would happen after that was all unknown. I didn't know about anything. I didn't know about pediatric cancer. I didn't know about brain cancer. I didn't know what would happen if it was benign. I really just didn't know what the next steps would be. So I focused on just getting him to smile. And thankfully he did the next day. He's just incredible. The next day after his five-hour brain surgery, he was smiling and playing peekaboo and just being an awesome (laughs) baby. I mean, that really is an incredible thing about an infant going through something like this. They don't feel sorry for themselves. Not that other people would, but a baby is unique in that they just don't really understand any of it. So when they feel okay, they're just happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He would just smile and, and giggle so much. So he, that really helped me get through a lot of it. And my other two kids too, just having them around and having something else to focus on. And now how old are your other two children? They were seven and nine at the time. They're 12 and 14 now. Okay. Yeah. So now you get the pathology back and what were they telling you? Yeah, they said that he has a glioblastoma and they called it a congenital glioblastoma because he was so young. It was most likely present since birth. Wow. And it's extremely rare in infants. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, his oncologist told me right away, don't Google anything. Nope. It doesn't bring you to any place that is going to help you or bring you comfort or give you information about what Carson's journey will be because he is Carson. He's not. He's not anybody else. He's not textbook case. Right. So they called this congenital glioblastoma, which is definitely something that is part of this community in doing this show. We talk about GBM all the time. We talk about DPIG. We talk about you know GBM and pediatrics. I have not yet had a case where we've talked about the fact that it's most likely been present since birth. It is, GBM is so rare as it is. Mm-hmm. And yet to have it be 
with somebody since the day that they were born, it just goes back to this whole, we have so little understanding as to how GBM behaves. Um, and so it's it's really so vital and important that we're sharing this story because this is not talked about a whole lot when it comes to the GBM community. I mean, that's one of my missions, I feel like, is to to get more information out there to create more awareness and maybe spread more hope if possible. It was very hard for me throughout the journey to try to find information on congenital glioblastoma. And they're just, there's some, there's not nothing, but it's not something like you're saying that people know about or have heard about. And it is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly how rare. I've heard different terms. I think that at one point his oncologist said she would estimate about 20 are diagnosed in the U.S. in a year. So that's thinking of the amount of infants in the U.S. That's extremely rare. So when you're talking about cancer populations as a whole, the GBM population for just adults over the age of 21, they get GBM. They are roughly diagnosed anywhere between 15 to 20,000 cases per year just in the United States. This is not global cases. And I have met many, many people globally that have this. Mm-hmm. I have had pediatric neurologists that focus specifically in pediatric brain cancer on the show. And the last numbers we saw were that maybe there were anywhere between 275 to 400 cases diagnosed per year in the U.S. And that is for all pediatric brain cancers. So if you whittle that down even further, you're talking about even less than that for infant GBM cases diagnosed per year. So that is how rare it is. Yeah. It's something I've never fully been able to wrap my head around. Mm -hmm. And then I tell myself, why dwell on it? It's Mm -hmm. not going to change anything. It did happen to you. It did happen to your son. So dwelling on how rare it is and why did it happen to me doesn't get me anywhere. So instead I focus on, on my family and my son and my hope. And that's my, my current plan. Hope is a powerful thing. It is. So you guys got the diagnosis. What did treatment look like for him being five, six months old? And then where is he right now? So let's start there because it is a pretty powerful story. And I do want people to realize how far, how far he's come. So let's start with what treatment looked like for him because I can't even imagine what treatment looks like for a five-month-old. Sure. Yeah. I had no idea either. I, I often say to people, I had no idea what chemotherapy in an, for an infant would look like. Mm-hmm. So he was not able to have radiation because of his age. It was a chemotherapy protocol. And due to the rarity of his diagnosis, there wasn't a, a standard treatment protocol. Mm-hmm. So his oncologist and his neurosurgeon, his whole team here locally, he was treated at Oshai and Roswell, Mm -hmm. was just incredible. They reached out to other hospitals. They brought him to a tumor board. They talked about his story. They came back with plans. And some people do different things depending on what they thought would be best for their patient. Okay. And went through a lot of discussions and a lot of trust in his incredible doctor. We went with a aggressive chemotherapy plan for about five rounds, mm-hmm. with followed by 
a little bit of a less aggressive plan, uh, more of a maintenance chemo. Mm -hmm. And the whole treatment took one year. So the aggressive rounds, he was in the hospital once a month for three or four days for chemo and then would go outpatient at Roswell for uh, once a week for two weeks and then have a rest week. He handled it all fairly well. He did have some fevers that we needed to be inpatient for throughout that that journey. Mm -hmm. And right near the end of his aggressive chemotherapy treatment, he got severe sepsis. Mm. He was just having a tough time. His poor body was just getting worn out. Mm -hmm. He was just very sick and tired and worn down. And that was one of my hardest days in treatment. I was with him at the hospital and he just was unresponsive and shaking and I was terrified. He ended up getting admitted for a few days because of that. And after that, we stopped the aggressive chemotherapy and switched to the maintenance. The maintenance chemo. When he was going through that, how were you and your husband taking care of each other? As a couple, as a married couple, as a mom and dad, how were you supporting each other during those hardest days? Oh, it was all tough. And having the other two kids in the equation, too, and wanting to be there for them. Mm -hmm. My husband stepped up in incredible ways that I will forever be grateful (laughs) for. I was still nursing Carson, so I had to be the person that was with him Mm -hmm. all of the time. And I also was, because when we first got the diagnosis, it was the summer, and I looked at my husband, I said, I can't go back to work this sounds intense. I think I have to be with him all the time. He has all these appointments. And what if he gets a fever? We have to go right to the ER. Like this just doesn't seem like I can support continuing to work. Mm -hmm. He was completely supportive in that. And so in the first six months, Carson and I were in the hospital so much. So he stepped up a ton with helping the kids at home, getting them to where they needed to be answering any questions they had, bringing them to hospitals. They could see me and Carson and visit. He would constantly ask me what I needed, bring me things to the hospital. People would drop off meals. He would come and feed us. Like I'll just never forget how supportive he was for everything I needed. So I really just could focus on Carson. And that was my tunnel vision. It really was. So I think that's the case, whether it's a child or a spouse, a loved one, an adult child, you become tunnel vision when it comes to this particular type of cancer. Nothing else matters. You put blinders on and you just focus on what you hope will be the end result. But the power and the strength that the two of you have in your relationship, the amount of strength and hope and resilience that your other two children have, it speaks volumes to the type of family that you are and how far you have come in this journey. The reason I put emphasis on it is because trauma like this can wreak havoc on a family unit, let alone a relationship. There is an enormous amount of stress and anxiety and fear and anger and emotion that just ebbs and flows throughout the entire journey. To have that kind of healthy support and communication with each other and with the children is just vital. I put emphasis on it for others who might be walking this journey or who may at some point walk this journey to balance and to make sure that you lean on each other and communicate with each other and tag team. The enormous amount of benefit that that can offer to both parents 
as you're walking through this journey. It's invaluable. And so I tip my hat to both of you. I do think that it's incredible the amount of work that you guys have done and support and love that you've given each other and the children, your other two children. Where is Carson now in his journey? This is pretty remarkable. So we're talking about five, six months old, diagnosed with GBM, probably congenital from birth. How old is he now? And what is he doing now? Oh, it's my favorite question. (laughs) There may be a point that I don't tear up when someone asks me how Carson is doing, but I'm just not there yet. He is incredible. He's just a wonderful ball of joy. He's so smart. It's amazing when I look at the MRIs of his brain and you see this large hole filled with fluid now, thankfully not cancer, but where his tumor was. And just looking at this boy in front of me that is typical in so many ways. He loves to run and play and jump on the trampoline and go all over on the playgrounds and play with his friends. He's currently five and he's in preschool. I just actually have a meeting coming up with his therapist and his teacher. So they've been reaching out with updates and everyone has incredible things to say about him and his progress and just his love of life and how smart he is. He's really, really thriving. Now, he has some delays and effects because of everything he went through. Mm -hmm. He has hearing loss due to the chemotherapy, bilateral, so he wears hearing aids. He has a speech delay, you know, most likely due to the hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And he has left-sided weakness from where the tumor was originally in his brain when his left side wasn't moving. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things we weren't sure how much he would be able to recoup. But if you saw him now running all over a playground, um, unless you're a physical therapist, you probably wouldn't notice uh, (laughs) some, some balance issues. He falls more than a typical kid his age and things that he's working on in therapy gets services for that. But, oh, he just makes us smile all the time with how much he just loves his family, loves life loves Mario. That's his current favorite. Um, (laughs) And he's so into numbers right now. He tells me things. I'll ask him a question and he'll answer it with a math problem. Like, how many puzzle pieces do you have left? He'll say five plus five because he has 10 left. He just likes to challenge himself with numbers. And he'll ask me questions all the time. Mom, I'm going to give you a hard one. What's 100 plus 400? And he genuinely (laughs) knows the answer to it. He's just really sharp and awesome and makes me smile constantly. It's a miracle. We're talking about glioblastoma and he is five years, more than five years into this journey. And it is remarkable where he is. What are doctors saying? What are they communicating to you as far as what the journey can look like down the road or what to expect or what they're saying about the progress that he's made. Yeah, I think Carson makes everyone smile, um, including his medical team. How can he Um, not? (laughs) I know. In the beginning, he um, had MRIs every two months and Mm -hmm. they were honest with us. You know, this is a very aggressive type of cancer Mm -hmm. and this is a time where we're unsure what's going to happen. We'll take it, you know, scan by scan. 
I think at some point someone told me early in his journey, like the one year point is a more hopeful benchmark. The two year point is the more hopeful benchmark, the five year point. So he had two scans every two months for the first couple of years. Then they were every three months for little, every four months for little. Currently they're every six months. He just had a clear scan. And when he has his next scan, if that one is clear, that will be five years with no evidence of disease. Wow. And I think from what's being communicated to me and what's in my heart, that is a very amazing and hopeful benchmark for him. It's beyond hopeful. Even for adults, neuro-oncologists are always talking about the five years, five years, five, if we can get them to five yes. years, if we can get them to five years, then they're doing really well. And chances are, odds are, they will go further. It just warms my heart just to even hear that. That's amazing. And it's such a great gift. And what a little fighter he is. <laughs> He's. He is. <laughs> I try to tell him sometimes, I mean, he's only five, but I try to tell him how incredible he is. It's hard to explain to a five-year-old, but my sister actually made him a book. It's um, well, a picture book with real pictures of him through his journey. And she wrote it like a children's book. So it tells that. his story to him. Yeah. So I read it to him before every MRI at least, and just talk to him because six months in the life of a kid his age, he's a lot different every six months of time. So he asks different questions and has different things to say about it and different comments. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see the journey unfold in his eyes, in his understanding of what he's been through, because he doesn't remember any of it, which is a unique aspect of his journey. Mm -hmm. It's not something in his mind that he went through. He doesn't know. When we talk about, and I, I wish children never got cancer. I really do. I wish this was just like something that only affected adults. And I wish it didn't even affect adults, to be honest. Right. No one. It's a reality. You know, it's part of life. It's just something that's out there. But the way children, especially very young children, handle getting such a severe diagnosis like this, the resiliency and the fortitude, and the, and they don't even realize they're doing it. And this capability to innocently just forge ahead. There is no second thinking. There's no second voice in the back of your head that is thinking about all of the internalizing everything that you're going through like we adults do. That part of the growth period, you know, like you don't, they haven't gotten there yet. And if adults could do what kids can do, I think it would just make all of us even those who are not walking through a cancer journey, I think it would make all of us healthier emotionally, mentally, physically. I'm always in awe when I'm talking to parents of children who are walking a path like this because the children just always surprise me. How can you not be in awe when you see what children are capable? They're like little mini Hercules. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And it's just so remarkable. For other parents, for other people who are listening who might be going through a cancer diagnosis, brain cancer or otherwise, with a child, a pediatric uh, case, what is the most challenging part for you of being a parent with a child with pediatric cancer? Oh, for sure. The fear and the worry, the fear of any fever sending you to the ER, the fear of relapse never goes away the fear of treatment and what that looks like and how it's going to affect them. And 
if they'll have lifelong side effects, the fear of the future and what it'll look like and what it'll hold. Mm-hmm. And I always had a fear of my other two kids. What is this going to feel like for them? How is it going to affect them? And how are they doing? How are your other two kids doing, especially as he's gotten to where he is processing through it, making sure you guys are spending equal time with them, their fear for Carson? How are they doing at this point? They're doing really well. You know, they don't think of it or dwell on it, at least that they communicate that much. I think that it was helpful that they went through it as children, too, even though they were older. They just had a hopeful outlook the whole time. My daughter would tell me things like, Mom, Carson's going to be okay because he has to be. And I really think she just believed that. So they didn't feel the fear that I did. Mm -hmm. I think that they just felt like he was going to be okay and he was getting what he needed to be okay. And I have obviously my husband and also just awesome family support. So they always, even if it wasn't me all the time, they always had the attention I think that they needed while he was going through treatment. What has this journey taught you that has made you stronger? I think it has taught me to not sweat the small stuff. Hey, there is a book about that. I had her on the show. All right. <laughs> <laughs> for that. Um, I feel like things like, for example, Carson has lifelong hearing loss. Mm-hmm. And if he would have been a child that would have had that before he went through this, I think that I would have struggled with it a lot more. Mm. But now I'm like lifelong hearing loss, just okay. You can have hearing aids. I'll get an FM system. So that'll help at school. Mm-hmm. We'll get him an IEP so he can get what he needs. And I'm just in, let me figure this out. So, so he can be okay mode because he's healthy and he's happy and he's here. I can handle hearing loss. Similarly, he recently um, was diagnosed with asthma, mm-hmm. another lifelong condition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, we will get an inhaler and we'll have a plan. And he can survive with that. Yes. Similarly, my daughter um, had to get her tonsils and adenoids out, which surgery, like it's not a huge deal, but it's it's something. It's not nothing. Well, that's pretty, it's a pretty intense surgery. <laughs> right. I just went in that with, um, okay, well, I know how anesthesia works. And let me yeah. tell you what, what this is going to look like when we go there. I don't spend as much time worrying about those things because I've spent so much time worrying about, is my child going to make it to his first birthday? Is he going to be able to go to kindergarten? There were so many days that I worried about things that were so much heavier than having asthma or getting your tonsils out. Mm -hmm. Those things present themselves. And I just have a different perspective. Things that may have been large in the grand scheme of things seem smaller. And I can work through them better without as much worry because I guess I've spent so much of my time worrying about something else. It's amazing what these type of traumas and challenges in life can really teach you. The kind of things that they can put into perspective when it comes to looking at life and how we see life. I think that's really profound. When you think about your family, when you think about Carson, glioblastoma aside, your children, your husband, you... What is one special memory that always puts a smile on your face? 
these days it's anytime we can all get together and go out as an entire family <laughs> because I have teenagers. Is it that are, rare? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're hard to drag out of their bedrooms. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. But truly, like lately, just it has been really wonderful to me to be able to get all five of us out to a dinner together, devices away, and just spending time with each other. It's been really special because Carson is so much younger than my other two kids. So things that we do don't always align. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll take my older son to basketball and, you know, Carson's bouncing around or we'll take Carson to a playground and then my teenagers are doing something else, Mm -hmm. you know. So really lately, any specific time that we can all five of us be together in a room and just enjoying each other has been really nice. Thinking of his journey, a specific memory that's a day that I'll just never forget was the day that Carson rang the bell at Roswell. Oh, yeah. I think that was a special day for all of us because so many people came that were so important to his journey. And I think it showed also my older two kids like how impactful his story had been and how many people were inspired by him. And we all just came together and celebrated him with our family and friends and his medical staff. And I'll just never forget the feeling of inspiration and joy from that day. That was just an awesome day. Yeah, I can picture it as you're, as you're saying it. And it's beautiful. Yeah, lots of smiles. Which is good. Mm -hmm. Smiles are always a good thing. (laughs) What are three tips that you have for other parents that are walking this path with a child with cancer or brain cancer? Two or three tips. Sure. You're overwhelmed in the beginning, but I am really grateful that I kept a journal. Mine was online. Like I made Carson a page online, but I really think it is important to be able to look back at what you were going through in that moment years later, myself now, I'll look back to what I wrote on a certain day that I remember and think, oh, that's not how I remembered it when I read my words from that day. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's important for Carson to be able to read that down the line and hear in my words what we went through in his journey. It'll be a lot different having him read my words from that day than me telling him in 10 or 15 years, this is what you went through. Instead, like read what I wrote about what you went through and really feel the impact of everything that, you know, your happened in your journey. I'm really happy that I did that, that I kept track of the important days of the hard days and have a really true representation of what it was like to go through that. Another thing that was really important to me is just to find a place that gives you hope. And by place, I mean, like, I would find, I found a couple stories of survivors of the type of cancer that Carson had. And Mm -hmm. when I started to get overwhelmed before scans, you know, when the scan anxiety starts and you don't know what to do with yourself, Mm -hmm. I would just go and read those stories over and over. And that was my safe place, like my place where I felt hopeful that he could be okay it was okay for this person, you know, Mm -hmm. and then all of the, I could place the fear and worry aside even for a minute or maybe go to my hopeful place. And so I could get some sleep that night. I love that. I think those are two very, very powerful tips and extremely helpful to other parents that might be walking this journey. 
We also have a special little gift for everybody. We're going to bring Carson in to say hi to everybody. Do you want to go get him? I will go grab him. <laughs> Just a sec. Hello. Say hi. <laughs> Carson, can you say hi? Hi. 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 So mommy tells me that you have a favorite video game. Can you tell us what that is? Oh, stop. What's your favorite video game? Is it Luigi? All of them. Say it louder. All of them. All of them. All of them. (laughs) That's a lot. Do you like Mario? Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) Carson, you are a very brave, brave boy. Can you tell us what your favorite food is? I can't remember. Buddy, is your favorite food pizza or tacos? Is it pizza? (laughs) Well, Carson, thank you so much for coming on and saying hi. Can you say goodbye to all of our listeners? Goodbye. Bye, buddy. Oh, he is so adorable, Kelly. Oh, thanks. And I am so unbelievably just filled with hope and inspiration. I truly hope he is one of those cases, one of those kids that he's 25, he's 30, he's 35, and neurologists can look at this and be like, okay, this is our... This is our gold standard like this, even for adults, like this is what we need to, we need to be hitting this and making sure that we have more people like him that are out there in the world. His resiliency and his just, his ability to just keep trucking along with life at five years old, unaware of the enormity of everything he goes through and the resiliency that you and your husband and your other children have, it's really commendable. I can't imagine having to to walk that journey with a five-month-old. So you can hear the strength in your voice. The hope that you have is powerful. And it is something that we need. Yes, It is something that I drum into our listeners all the time that you have to hope is a powerful, powerful thing. Yes, And even on your darkest days, you cannot, you have to fight for that hope. You do. And, and it doesn't, to have the hope doesn't change anything. It just helps you to work through any emotions or fears that you may have. You have to, mm-hmm. to cling to that hope. And like I said earlier, find a place that makes you feel it. If you're having trouble finding it, find somewhere that you can always go to feel it because it's only going to help. Absolutely. And if Carson's story can give that to <laughs> even one person, then my that is my mission. And that's the whole point, you know, that there are cases, good story cases out there, successful story cases out there. And even if we can't change what is taking place, that doesn't mean that something amazing can't come out of it or that there isn't light at the end of the journey. That is something we all have to hang on to. And even for our listeners who have been touched by brain cancer as an adult or have adolescent or young adult children or a caregiver. These stories are hopeful stories, no matter the age you are, because it's a hard journey, hard path to walk. 
I'm so grateful that you that you shared this story. I'm so grateful to have heard his voice. It literally put the biggest smile on my face the minute he was like, hi. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. He couldn't remember anything when you asked him. He has no idea what his favorite food is. He's being... <laughs> oh, and I'm sure he's like staring at the screen going, wait, what is this? <laughs> I don't see any games. I can't. I'm not hitting any buttons. What's going on? There's no players on here. <laughs> right where is mario yes exactly (laughs) but he you can hear the hope in his voice you can hear the resiliency in his voice and just he just the sweetness uh and that's i think that's a gift to all of us um to be able to even have him come on for a minute so thank you so much for sharing all this with us again for everybody who's listening we will have information about kelly and their family and carson and where you can learn more about their story I will put information for pediatric resources, including Roswell Park Cancer Center and Oshai, but also nationally at other pediatric cancer centers. Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, you are a godsend. I am very grateful to you for having the strength to want to share your story. And I hope you keep us updated on how you are doing. Oh, I absolutely will. And I thank you so much for having me on. It makes me feel better to be able to share his story. It's therapeutic for me. It makes me feel like I'm doing something to give back to the community that has been there through me for my journey. And I just appreciate the time and you letting me come on and share about my awesome warrior. Thank you. (laughs) Well, he is an awesome warrior. For everybody out there, thank you so much for listening to this truly unique and amazing and inspirational story. And with that, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by UB Neurosurgery. Learn more at ubns.com. You've become a caregiver. Now what? When life changes and you find yourself in a different space, in a different role, than you're used to, whether you are the parent of a child who's been diagnosed, a husband and wife duo, a child of a parent who's been diagnosed, a couple who's just entered retirement, no matter what phase of your life you are in, when you become a caregiver, it is a difficult role to take on. When you become the one diagnosed, it is a difficult role to take on. Your roles now diverge. They become different. Your paths are still going in a parallel direction, but the roles have changed and you need to get used to that. So when that happens, the first thing you need to do is talk to each other. If you're the parent of a child, you talk to your husband or your wife. You talk to the other children in the household. You just need to talk to each other. That is the first thing that you do. Recognize that you are now on slightly different paths. Talk about your worries and your fears. It's okay for the caregiver to be unsure about what to do, what steps to take, what decisions to make. Being strong for your loved one. You need to be able to sit and communicate where you're at, how you feel, how they feel, and yet still tackle it together as a team. If you have other children in the household, just like our guest today said, they still need an outlet. They still need to feel that things are normal for them. They can't be forgotten about. Their lives still need to go on, 
even though your role has changed with one of the children in the house. It's a balancing act, and it is not an easy one. If you are the spouse of someone who's been diagnosed, that your roles are different, that somebody might not be the primary breadwinner at the moment, they may not be the protector, they may not be the one that has all the answers or knows what to do, they may not be the decision maker anymore. That may fall to you. As the caregiver, you take on a different role. Your spouse, your loved one takes on a different role. And you have to adjust and correct for that. You do the best that you can. You have humility and grace with yourself and your partner. You're going to make mistakes. You may not make all the right decisions. You may not have all the answers. And you have to allow the one who's been diagnosed the same grace to walk their journey. They may be frustrated that they can't perform the tasks they did before, that they can't help with the household the same way they did before, that they can't make all the decisions maybe as they did before, so they rely on you. That is a heavy burden for both. And it is okay to feel whatever feelings come up because of that. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to recognize that you are all a family unit. You are a team. You also need to focus on whether or not you need counseling individually, together as a family or as a couple. When somebody is diagnosed in your immediate orbit, you may need some outside help and that is okay. It is okay to get guidance, to find new tools to add to your toolkit. As the caregiver and the one who's been diagnosed or a family dynamic, a child has been diagnosed. It is okay to still need an outlet. It is okay to want to still do things that feel normal. Whether it's surfing, going for walks, hiking, cycling, golfing taking an hour to read a good book, getting together with some friends, taking your other children out for their activities or their sports. You each need to have an outlet, including the one who's been diagnosed, to feel normal within an unnormal situation and allow each other the space to do those things occasionally while also recognizing that these plans are not going to be normal all the time. Schedules are going to shift and change. Doctor's appointments are going to replace outings and fun things. The one who's been diagnosed may not feel well when they start treatment. And so that becomes the priority for you as the caregiver to be there for them. And everybody in the household, everybody in your family unit needs to recognize that these are going to be moments and it's going to be a balancing act. At the end of the day, love is what brought you together. Love is what sustains you. Hope is what drives this journey. And grace is what you need to walk through this. Use these tips to guide your journey. Ask for help where you need it. Be okay with not having all of the answers. Be okay with the unknown. Be patient 
with each other, understanding that you're each on a different journey at the moment, but you're still a family unit. You're still a team. You still love each other. You don't walk away from that. You don't give up. You have patience and understanding. Walk with grace, with guidance, with gratitude. Until next time. September is Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. Please join us in supporting efforts to help those going through pediatric cancer. Please consider donating to HopeRisesNews.com and support the Shine Gold event taking place on September 27th. Also join us in making donations to Cervax M Vaccine through our Trap Hagen's Trail Ride for Brain Cancer coming up on September 30th. All proceeds for that fundraiser will support brain cancer initiatives provided by Game on Glio Podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Game on Glio Podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers, such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. Like what you hear? Share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast, Facebook at Game on Glio, or visit our website or YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.